Have there ever been moments in your life where you had a hard time sleeping at night? Maybe, maybe even last night for some of you. Such was the case of Adoniram Judson. In the summer of 1808, Judson found himself lying wide awake in an inn outside of New York City. And you know what was keeping him up at night? There's the person in the room next to him. You see, the guy in the room right next to him, they shared a wall. He was in the throes of death. And coming through their shared wall was constant sounds of groaning, coughing, and wheezing. Judson had been staying at that inn because he was en route to New York City. You see, months earlier, on his 20th birthday, he broke the heart of his Christian parents by announcing and proclaiming to them that he abandoned the Christian faith. He was walking away from the Lord and instead giving his whole life to the pursuit of pleasure. And that's why he was moving to New York City to pursue a life of pleasure by working in the theater. What led to this, you might ask? Well, a few years earlier, Judson became friends with an upperclassman named Jacob Eames at Providence College. Eames was a winsome and witty young man, and he had convinced Judson to abandon his Christian faith and instead become a skeptic. Well, it wasn't just the loud coughing and the moans that was keeping Judson up that night. That was coming from the other room. No, as Judson lied awake, and as he heard the man's restless struggles to stay alive, Judson began to wonder about his own fate and death. And as he lied awake, he wondered what his free-thinking friend Eames would say to him in order to dismiss Judson's anxiety and to remove his fear for what lay on the other side of death. Well, finally, the light of dawn entered Judson's chamber and the distressing noises from the next room ended. Gathering his things, Judson prepared to put the whole stressful ordeal behind him, but behind him by leaving really quickly and continuing on with his travels the next morning. And as he was getting ready to leave the inn, he bumped into the innkeeper. So he asked him, he said, hey, that, that poor old, old man in the room next to me, how, how is he doing? And the innkeeper replied, oh, uh, he died. And the innkeeper said, and, and by the way, he wasn't an old man. He was a young man, about your age. And Justin asked, well, do you know who he was? Oh, yes, the innkeeper said. Young man, he, he was from Providence College. Name was Eames. Jacob Eames. 
Pastor and author John Piper provides this postscript to this remarkable providence. Piper writes this, Judson could hardly move. He stayed there for hours pondering the death of his unbelieving friend. If Eames were right, then this was a meaningless event. But Judson could not believe it. That hell should open up in that country inn and snatch Jacob Eames, his dearest friend and guide, from the next bed, this could not, simply could not be pure coincidence. Adoniram Judson, who as many of you know, later became one of the greatest of all Baptist missionaries, he was not immediately converted after this event. Months of spiritual struggle were to follow as he wrestled with this remarkable providence that night and the own, his own sinfulness of his heart. But one thing was sure, and that is this, that the presence of death had crossed the path of his life and it changed him forever. It made him reevaluate his deeply held convictions and beliefs. And the presence of death does that, doesn't it? I mean, who here in this room has not in some way been changed or affected by the news of the death of a family member, friend, or loved one? In fact, you don't have to say it out loud, but how has the reality of death altered your way of thinking or your way of life? In our passage this morning that we're going to look at faith, we encounter a man, another man, whose life was dramatically changed by the news of death, and that is David. In the opening chapter of 2 Samuel 1, David receives the news that Saul and Saul's sons have died in battle. Yet surprisingly enough, instead of David responding in exuberant joy, because remember, as we've been studying the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, Saul was actively trying to kill David. Instead of David responding with exuberant joy at this news, instead what we find is that David mourns the death of Saul and Jonathan. Indeed, as we're about to see, you know what David does? David pens. David writes a lament. As several commentators have stated, a lament is simply an expression of thoughtful grief. In lament, words are carefully selected, crafted, and honed in in order to express loss as closely yet fully as possible. And that's what we have here this morning. We have a well-crafted, 
thoughtful lament by David. And you know what we learn from David's well-crafted lament? We learn this important truth, and that is this. Your deepest values are revealed in loss. The things you value most, the things you treasure most, your deep-seated convictions, they are revealed in moments and seasons, not of prosperity, but in loss. You see, in the death of Saul and Jonathan, both David and Israel have suffered great, great loss. You could have say that they have suffered a mighty loss. And as we're going to see what David says repeatedly in this lament, oh, how the mighty have fallen. This is an expression of great loss. And friend, faith, community church, visitor, friend, what every moment of loss does in your life, in my life, in David's life, in Judson's life, what every moment of loss does, it reveals a person's deepest concern. That is the things they value most. <laughs> when the things of this world grow strangely dim, when they are taken away, we quickly discover what it is we value. And you know what we discover about the person and the character of David in this well-crafted lament? As we're about to see, we learn, you know what his greatest value is? It's God. As we're about to see, God is central in David's grief. And you know what? God should be central in your grief too. And you know why I say that? I say that because as David makes clear in verse 18 of our text, he wanted this well-crafted lament. He wanted to be taught to God's people. This is to say David composed this lament so that others would share David's high value of God. That is, that they would be God-centered. And let me just say, not just in their grief, <laughs> but in all aspects of their life. All right? So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 1. This morning we're going to be studying verses 17 through 27. And, I, and I'm going to suggest, um, I mean, there's, there's much that we could say uh, about this passage, but I'm just going to suggest that David in this text demonstrates two ways in which he is God-centered in his grief. Yet since this is something that he wanted taught to God's people, I want to present these two things, these two subpoints, in the form of a question. Okay? So, right, your deepest values are revealed in loss. And here's the first question 
David's lament presses upon our hearts, and that is, do you value the honor of God's reputation? Do you value, Christian, you who pledge allegiance to Jesus, do you value the honor of God's reputation? Follow along with me as I read verses 17 the 21, just the first couple lines of this lament. We read this. So remember, David just heard about what had happened to Saul. He killed the Amalekite, right? And then verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jassar. Now, the book of Jassar, I know we're all wondering, what is that? <laughs> okay? Now, if you're wondering, it's not a bad thing, because this isn't the only place we see this book referenced in Scripture. It's also referenced in Joshua 10.13. And many scholars believe it to be a collection of Israel's heroic war songs. But at any rate... It is both lost and out of print, okay? So we shouldn't let our curiosity about the book of Jassar distract us from the inspired text in front of us, okay? And so let's see, let's dive into the lament. Notice the first verse here, verse 19. David writes, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. And I want to just pause here just for a moment. As, as we're about to work our way through this lament, this passage, it's going to become clear that David's lament is much to do with Jonathan, if not more, than Saul. If you look at the footnotes in your Bible, you'll, you'll notice that the title of this lament is The Bow, okay? like a bow and arrow. And this is a word used in reference to Jonathan, who Jonathan, he shot a what? Bow. I'm giving you a big hint. Yeah, that's right, a bow, right? <laughs> David's going to mention this in verse 22. Indeed, Jonathan, if we've been reading our Bibles carefully and we're reading through 1 Samuel, Jonathan is linked with a bow during his lifetime. Think about 1 Samuel 20, 18 through 20. And, and what, remember what Jonathan did? He was shooting the what? The bow to let David know whether to come or go. Remember this? Okay. But you also need to know that that word for glory in verse 19, it's not the same Hebrew word that has been used previously in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, but it's a different word. As several commentators, the, the smart guys tell us, it is a word that can also be translated, the one here in verse 19, it can also be translated as gazelle. For example, that's exactly how it is translated in the next chapter, 2 Samuel 2, verse 18, to describe a fleet-footed warrior. Okay, so, so where am I going with all this? Just stay with me. This translation, the idea of a gazelle, a, a fleet-footed person, it makes sense of the rest of David's lament as it fits also in with verse 23, which describes Jonathan as one swifter than eagles. 
Indeed, the focus on Jonathan in this lament is also indicated in the fact that when Saul and Jonathan are first mentioned for the first time together in verse 22, David puts Jonathan's name first. All this to say, at first glance, it doesn't appear that Jonathan shows up much in the first part, but he does. Yet as much as Jonathan is emphasized in this lament, you need to know Jonathan is not David's chief concern. For look at what David goes on to say in the following two verses, 20 and 21. So he says, verse 19, Your glory, O Israel, or referring to your, your gazelle, the one who is swift, your mighty warrior, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. And now notice the first thing David says, Tell it not in Gath. Where is Gath located? The Philistines. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. As historians tell us, ancient warriors often rubbed oil on their leather shields to preserve them and to make them shine. Shields were literally anointed. And since Saul had fallen in battle, his anointed shield now lay in the dust, a dramatic image of the fallen anointed one. But what you also need to know is that in Scripture, especially in the Psalms, weapons of war, particularly a shield, were often used synonymously with the king or prince. This is to say the Lord's anointed king, please hear me, is the shield for his people. And what David is getting at is that Jonathan and Saul not only had weapons, but they were weapons. But now they lie unused and useless on the heights of Gilboa. So he says, For their shield, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. Do you value the honor of God's reputation? All right, let's let's take a little American history quiz, okay? Tell me, who shot Alexander Hamilton? Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr Jr. That's right. Okay. How many of you knew that answer from the musical Hamilton? Okay. How many of you knew that answer from the famous Got Milk commercial in the early 90s? That would be me. Okay. Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr. Okay. Well, do you happen to know who Aaron Burr Jr.'s mother was? The guy we just talked about. You know who his mother was? Elizabeth Edwards Burr, the daughter of Jonathan Edwards. Her husband, Aaron Sr., was the president of Princeton College. He was a godly man who loved the Lord, loved the Lord. Well, in the fall of 1757, 
bird died of a fever, get a load of this, after delivering a sermon at the funeral of the governor of Massachusetts. So he goes to deliver a sermon at a funeral and dies a few days later of a fever. And here's the sad thing, he was 41 years old. As you can imagine, this loss was exceptionally hard for his wife, Esther. Yet her sorrow was a mixture of both pain and holy worry. Because listen to what she wrote her parents shortly after her husband died. This is remarkable. Notice what she wrote. She says, Oh, I am afraid. I shall conduct myself so as to bring dishonor on my God and the religion I profess. No, rather let me die this moment than be left to bring dishonor on God's holy name. I am overcome, I must conclude, with months more begging that as my dear parents remember themselves, they would not forget their greatly afflicted daughter, now a lonely widow, nor her fatherless children. Tell me, what was her greatest concern in the midst of such a heavy loss? God's honor. Her greatest concern was the honor of God's name. Her greatest value was revealed in loss. And what was it? It was God. And notice we see the same thing, the exact same thing I want to argue in the opening verses of this lament, don't we? For what's the first thing David says in verse 20 in light of the fact that Israel's king and Jonathan and the armies have been defeated. What's the first thing David is concerned about? What's the first thing he says in verse 20? He says, tell it not in Gath. I don't want the Philistines to gloat. This looks bad for God's people and for God. David's lament mourned Saul's death in part because it caused the Philistines to gloat over the fall of Israel, a proof in their eyes of the superiority of their god Dagon over the god of Israel. In the death of Saul, Israel had lost their shield and the Philistines were having a heyday with it. I mean, remember what we learned back in chapter 31 that records Saul's death? Tell me, what did the Philistines do when they learned that Saul had died? Do you remember? The text says they stripped Saul. Well, they, they cut off his head, right? They cut off his head. They stripped Saul of his armor and sent messengers throughout the land to carry, and this is the word the text uses, to carry the good news of their idols to the people. Our God, Dagon, won! And this greatly bothers David. As David's thinking about crafting a lament to be taught to the people of God, what does he lead with? A concern that God's honor, God's reputation would be honored. David's greatest value is God. 
And by way of application, can I ask, is it yours? Do you share David's concern to have God's reputation honored? And you know what you all are going to say to me? Yes. You know what I'm going to say to myself? But of course, Aaron. But how do you know for sure? I mean, what's the metric to know that truly God is my greatest value and the honor of his reputation is one of my chief concerns? Is it just verbal lip service? Something I just say? I'll tell you what it is not. The metric to know whether you truly value and want to see God's reputation honored, it is not by being concerned with what other Christians are doing. For some reason, when we start thinking about honoring God's reputation, we quickly think of all the things other Christians are doing that annoy us. But that is not the correct metric. No, the best gauge to know if honoring God's reputation is your chief concern is by looking at your own life. Does your life bring honor to God's name? Does your life reflect a weightiness of God? Christian, for a moment, just take your eyes off the Christians who you think are doing crazy things and foolish things and instead take an honest look at yourself. And here's the question I've been asking myself. Am I more concerned with pleasing me or pleasing Christ? There's a scene in the movie Miracle where the USA Olympic hockey coach Herb Brooks makes his team skate up and down the ice countless times. In fact, the skating drill is affectionately known as Herbie's to those who play hockey. And as many of you know, the movie Miracle is about the 1980 U.S. hockey team that won the gold medal. Amen, right? Well, this scene that I'm describing is where Brooks forces his team to skate up and down the rink after losing a preliminary game. And, and what it is is this. that The guys, they, they start at the goal line and they go to the blue line. Then they go back to the goal line, then to the red line, then to the goal line, then to the other blue line, then back to the goal line, then to the other goal line, and all the way back. That's one lap. Okay? And in the scene, he has the, his players do this drill, and each time they complete one lap, Brooks would randomly look at a player and ask, who do you play for? And the player would immediately answer the college that he's from. And Herbs would say, again, escape back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And without fail, each time he would ask them that question, who do you play for? They would give the name of the college team. So Brooks would blow the whistle and say, again. And this went on literally for hours. In fact, most of the guys were vomiting on the ice. They were so exhausted. And in between laps, he'd say the same question, who do you play for? He's like, Boston College, University of Michigan. And he'd blow the whistle, again. And then finally, after hours of skating, and right before Brooks yells at them again to skate, Mike Ruzioni speaks up. 
And Brooks looks them in the eyes and says, tell me, who do you play for? And Mike Rizzoni says, I play for the United States of America. And to the relief of all the players and the coaches, Brooks says, that's all, gentlemen. And he walks away. Brooks was trying to teach and make a point to that team, wasn't he? And you know what the lesson he was trying to teach those guys? It was simply this. And that is, the name on the front of your jersey is more important than the name on the back of your jersey. He wanted to drill into their heads that they represented something larger than themselves, and that's the United States of America. Christian, as a follower of Christ, you wear God's jersey. You play for Him. You represent Him. And the name on the front of your jersey is far more important than the name on the back. Meaning, when you stroll into work this Monday morning, you are representing something far greater and more important than just yourself. Christian, little Christ, you are representing Christ to the world in your workplace, in your neighborhood, at school. And the question is, what kind of reputation are you giving God in those spaces? Read her words again. Because Christian, as Esther Burr correctly wrote her parents, sin can bring shame and dishonor and disgrace to the God you profess to believe in. So how do we how do we make God central in our lives? Well, it's in this way, by reminding yourself that God alone is worthy of your full devotion and worship, and nothing comes close. You have been bought with a price. Your body is not your own. Glorify Him. He is worthy to be Lord in every area of our lives. And when the Spirit convicts us as the light of God's word shines in and exposes areas in our lives where we, we haven't been honoring the Lord. We don't wallow in self-pity, but we bring it into the light, we confess it, and we receive Christ's cleansing, and then we walk in newness of life. We turn from that, and we turn towards the Lord. Lord, whose mercy is more. But then the second question that this lament presses upon our hearts is this. Do you value not only the honor of God's reputation, but also the, werf, the welfare of God's people? Because notice what David goes on to say in verses 22 and following. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow, there it is, the bow of Jonathan turned not back and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. This goes back to the idea of the gazelle. Swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. 
Now notice the symmetry. We're going to talk about this in a moment. The symmetry of this lament. Earlier he talked about the daughters of the Philistines. Notice what he says there in verse 24. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. Why? Because what did Saul provide for you? He clothed you in luxurious, in scarlet, luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Speaking of lament, uh, this past Friday was exceptionally hard for me. Why, you might ask? Well, because like a bad dream, the Chicago Cubs traded away their best players. <laughs> it was a nightmare. My Twitter feed kept blowing up with bad news after bad news. And I need to tell you, Confession is good for the soul. I'm really concerned about my Chicago Cubs. <laughs> Chris Bryant, who used to excite us with great fielding and batting, is no more. Anthony Rizzo, who used to win over Cubs fans around the nation with his lovable personality and towering home runs, is no more. Javier, uh, Javier Baez, who used to dazzle us with spectacular plays on the field and energetic at-bats, is no more. You know what I'm saying? Weep, fans of Chicago, over these players who brought you so much joy and many wins for Chicago. Now, that was kind of fun. But I do that illustratively to show you that David says something very similar concerning Jonathan and Saul, doesn't he? And the verses I just read, David is expressing concern for the welfare of God's people because just like I presently have concern for the Cubs. What I'm saying is this, whereas Chicago no longer has Rizzo, Bryant, and Baez, please hear me, Men who brought so much to Chicago, Israel no longer has Saul and Jonathan. Men who were mighty warriors and who provided Israel with many goods. This is why, just as I said, weep Chicago fans, David says, weep, O daughters of Israel, because the good things you once had that provided for you, you no longer have. Do you see, David is concerned for the welfare of God's people here. Now, to be sure, Saul had his problems and was indeed a problem to Israel. And we've talked about that. That said, though, I find it rather instructive how concerned David is for the welfare of the Lord's people. This, again, is one of the reasons why I'm arguing that God is central in his grief. And it should be central in our grief, too. So just... If I could just pause here for a moment, I think it's quite appropriate for us to examine our own hearts for a moment and consider if we indeed are concerned for the welfare of God's people. I mean, we're concerned about ourselves, are we not? I know I'm concerned about myself. Yet how closely do we follow David's example here and the New Testament command to care for other believers? New Testament texts like 
Hebrews 13.3, right? Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. He's referring to Christians. We, we, we cite this for quite frequently when we have our International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. This is one of many examples where the Bible calls us to have a concern for the welfare of God's people. Or think of 1 John 3. Now this text is explicitly talking about other Christians. Where John writes, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother, that's referring to a Christian, not just some random Joe on the street, but a brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. To be God-centered in life and in our grief is to have, I want to argue, a concern for the welfare of God's people. This is why John also in 1 John says, you cannot love God without loving God's people. But I want to just press in here just a little bit more and say, this not only includes physical needs, but spiritual needs as well. I mean, just as it's appropriate to have concern over the daily bread of another brother or sister, so too, perhaps even more, we ought to have concern for their walk with the Lord. I mean, I don't know when's the last time you had a good cry. But should we not also mourn and weep when we hear of a brother or sister who has walked away from the faith like Judson did in his 20s? Should we not weep over that? Should we not grieve when we hear of a Christian caught and entrenched in sin? I think we ought. And then speak truth to them in love. Now, anyone who has read 1 Samuel, especially chapters 19 onward, you will no doubt wonder, as you're reading this lament by David, you're thinking, how in the world, or why in the world, is David not airing all of Saul's dirty laundry and rejoicing over his death? Why is David not gloating over his death? I mean, Saul tried to kill him on multiple occasions. Well, John Calvin provides some excellent insight and counsel on this matter. He writes this. He says, David does not want us to be so presumptuous in our rejoicing that we fail to consider our own sins and thus displease him, referring to God. And again, notice the, the vernacular that Calvin is using here because he too understands that David has written this to teach us. He goes on, we ought not to tremble before, we ought to rather, tremble before his majesty, knowing that we too are as deserving of punishment and grief as those whom he punishes. Structurally, as many scholars have identified, this lament has incredible symmetry to it. I mean, just notice, uh, verse 19, your glory, O Israel, is slain, how the mighty have fallen. Verse 25, how the mighty have fallen. Verse 20, the daughters of Philistines. Verse 24, the daughters of Israel. There's, there's parallelism. There's incredible symmetry until you get to the final two verses. 
And it's like, what's up with that? You're like, David, he had such a good thing going. It was so tight and well-ordered. What's going on here? Well, it appears, and I think, look, everything communicates. It appears as if David's grief could not be confined to the limits, the limits of poetic structure, especially when it comes to his beloved friend Jonathan. So I think David intentionally breaks meter here, breaks the symmetry to just emphasize his grief over his friend Jonathan. Because notice what he says about Jonathan in verse 26. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, and it was. Surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. I love what Dale Ralph Davis says about these verses. He writes, Saul may have decked Israel's women in crimson, but Saul's son had extended a love to David that surpassed the love of women. Now, to absolutely no one's surprise, modern readers have taken verse 26 to suggest and to argue quite adamantly that David and Jonathan had a homosexual relationship. However, such a suggestion is not only absolutely ridiculous, but it also misses the point of the verse. Indeed, I'm going to suggest such a suggestion says more about our culture's hypersexualization in relationships than the intent of this passage. Friend, please know the comparison between Jonathan's love and a wife's love is not at the point of sexuality, but at the point of fidelity. As Matthew Henry wrote long ago, coming on this text, he, David, had a reason to say that Jonathan's love to him was wonderful. Surely never was the like. Because, listen, for a man to love one who he knew was to take the crown over his head, and to be so faithful to his rival, this far surpassed the highest degree of conjugal affection and constancy. I mean, I mean, and this is so true. Think of what we learned about Jonathan thus far. In fact, I mentioned to Stephanie earlier this week, as I have been studying and, and we've been working through this book, something that has actually kind of surprised me is uh, I just didn't, know this beforehand, but I have just grown to love Jonathan. What an incredible man. An incredible godly man. Wise man. I mean, here is a man who is totally devoted to David becoming the king of Israel, even though he was the next in line. And I love, I love that passage in 1 Samuel 18. And think of when Jonathan, he goes to David, and, and what does he do? He gives David his royal robe, his armor, his sword, his belt, signifying to David that, you know what, David, I'm relinquishing my agenda, my plan for my life, my desire to be king, my desire to call the shots. I'm giving that all over to you, David, because I know you, David, are God's true anointed king. Jonathan wanted to be second. 
What humility. You know what Jonathan was? Jonathan, like David, he was a man who made God central in his life. And it showed in how he responded to David in adversity and in his joyfully giving over the kingdom to him. Jonathan chose to live for God's true anointed king rather than himself. And as we bring this plane in for a landing faith, can I ask, are there certain areas in your life that you've not yet relinquished over to God? Jonathan, I mean, are there certain areas? Maybe in your relationships. Maybe in how you go about interacting with your coworkers. Or maybe with money. Maybe you're holding tight onto money rather than joyfully giving it back to the Lord. Jonathan gave everything to follow God's true anointed king. How can we not do the same to the one who David pointed to, the Lord Jesus? Friend, and I close with this. Death is coming for you. Indeed, like Eames, death might come quicker than you think. So how are you preparing for death? Because you know what awaits every person on the other side of death? The Bible is not silent on this. What awaits every person is judgment. Friend, please hear me. You have a soul that will never die. That's not only true of the kids we prayed for this morning, it's true of all people. You have a soul that will never die. Every person who has ever walked this planet will spend an eternity either in blessed joy with God in heaven or eternal suffering in hell. There is no third option. And what the Bible makes abundantly clear is that every person's eternal destination is based solely on their response to God's true anointed king, the king to one whom David points to, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, friend, and we have to understand this, our fundamental problem isn't a lack of spiritual enlightenment. No, our fundamental problem is sin. And we all know this. I've yet to talk to a person who thinks they're perfect. I've yet to talk to a person who says, you know what, I got it all together. We all know we're sinners. We all know we have not loved God like we ought. We have not served him like we ought. Every one of you have done things and thought things you'd be terrified if others found out. Amen. We all know this. We know we're sinners. Our problem isn't a knowledge that we don't think we're sinners. Our problem is we just don't think sin deserves judgment. But friend, love compels me to tell you that it does. So what are you going to do with the punishment that is owed you for your sin? Are you going to try to work it off? Friend, your, your good deeds are like filthy rags. You have a sin debt you cannot possibly pay and this is precisely why you and I need Jesus. 
As Steve articulated a moment ago during communion, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus came to earth to live the obedient life we failed to live. And then go to the cross to die the death we are owed for our sin. So that through faith in Christ, our sins can be forgiven, we can be declared righteous, and we can have God. Look, you cannot be God-centered without putting your faith in Christ. So have you done that? And if you haven't and you'd like to talk more about it, I'd love to talk with you more after the service. Now just say this. Again, let Eames be, let his story haunt you today. Guy in his young 20s died. But for those of you who do belong to Jesus by faith, as David stated, on Gilboa, Israel lost her shield. But praise the Lord, Christian, that in Christ we have something stronger than a shield. You know what we have? We have a mighty fortress. We have a God who cares for us and loves us and provides for us. May he be our greatest value. May we live for him because he's worthy. Amen? Let's pray.